0: The following presentation was produced by the buddhist society of victoria please visit our website at bsv.net.au so i'd like to welcome you here today it is um a time that we need to reflect actually on many things that are happening and bringing about fear. So, somebody suggested I talk to this subject, which of course has been covered many times, but in light of the ongoing lockdowns and particularly in light of what's happening in Kabul. So, let's just take a moment to settle to let our thoughts rest and just bring a heart of loving kindness, a heart of goodwill and wishing for good outcomes for the majority of people who need to leave that country and for their safety. And their well being. It's a tragedy that we all feel very deeply, and it also reflects on us personally. Our fears. And insecurities point to deep lack of trust and the great divides there are in the world. And there is a cloud of unknowing, particularly at present. Many people who are finding lockdowns extremely difficult on so many levels. We have our daily fears, the near accidents, a diagnosis of poor health. And there is an undercurrent to these fears. Where our habits or our inability to face them, allow them to grow. But too, there is fear a fear, a wisdom fear, that can be developed in a positive light, that of being a a protector. The Sanskrit scholar Robert Thurman pointed out, actually fear isn't included in the long list of mental afflictions where anger is. However, it informs us of the danger and it shines a light on the alienations and separations that surround us. In an absence of a fixed or solid view, isolation, in isolation, fear can diminish. And when we choose to observe things more as they are and not as we want them to be, we can slowly ease the constraints of our limited perceptions and allow life to enter without so much fear of blame and skeptical doubt. When we choose to observe things as they are, we can alleviate what uh, is seen as um, a self that dominates, self view that dominates much of our life. So, of course, we are all here because we have practiced meditation, or we're coming to understand Buddhism, we're starting to examine and understand and slow things down a little in our lives. But if we look directly at our own experience, we first examine what fear is and we discern it. We can start to dissect it into its components, how it arises, What are the sensations in the body that we feel when we're afraid? What thoughts are racing through our mind? And we can face fear very directly, front on. With practice, we begin to see what is before us. We have a saying in Zen, a snake shouldn't have feet. It means we begin to not add anything to it. We see it just as it is. By slowing down a little, we can see the subtle arisings and how our fear grows. It is always there. But the issue is what stimulates it, or what um, ignites it. I'll tell some more stories soon, but I'll just point out a little bit more. But uh, through our meditation and developing of our attention and our concentration, we can e- e- move much more easily and fearlessly without hesitation. We can grow strength and power and become a quite a competent practitioner in the way. And this we recognize as one who is becoming fearless. But fearlessness still is born out of understanding fear. When we overly linger in our our thoughts, in our worries, in our concerns, potential to overcome will remain mired and frozen in inaction. And I think a lot of us have felt that during this time of ongoing um, lockdowns, where we can't leave our homes for very long, we can't be with the ones we want to be with our loved ones. So we become inert and often quite lazy or our habits become, the negative habits start to grow and underlying fear begins to grow too. There are two extremes. At one end we just, as I said, We enter a state of freeze or non-doing. You become petrified in a way. And the other extreme is panic, which is what we're seeing happening in many parts of the world, but particularly in and around Kabul, where the mind sort of goes into a hyperdrive, into a hysteria, into an excessive determined attention. In a positive light, the fact that fear is an innate human condition, it also offers us protection. It offers us protection against mental states, negative mental states, that haven't arisen and we can prevent them from arising. And it can inform us of danger. In the absence of a fixed and solid self view, uh, we are no longer in isolation or fearing diminishing. That is, feeling that sense of separation, that sense of lack of capacity. And with it, your alienation or sense of separation from others. Also diminishes, and we feel more connected with the world. We resonate with the suffering of others. So, fear has also an important purpose. Thich Nhat Hanh speaks on an important point in relation to fear and power. In a way, fearing powerlessness or an aptitude is a point to consider. We are afraid of being powerless, he says, but we do have the power to look deeply at our fears and then fear cannot control us. We do have that capacity, that power, to look deeply at our fears, so fear cannot control us. Can we empower ourselves to turn inward and look deeply at these deep concerns we have all the time and share them openly and without shame? There's nothing to be ashamed about in fear when we can acknowledge it and learn to work with it. We can also be informed on what is both rational and irrational and find a connection from our common purpose of being humans. And also being just a being in connection to all other life. Being connected to the environment responsible to climate change. There's some part of us that is part of this whole catastrophe. We are in some way responsible. It is out of ignorance, it is out of not knowing what to do that we are afraid. And often we are afraid of what we should not be fearful of, which is an interesting point. The feelings of fear lay, in the feelings of fear, lay an uncertainty. The doubts, the irritations, the resentments, disappointments. There are even jealousy and embarrassments. And at an extreme there are the aggression and anger that we see. You know, and the faces of the ISIS, young ISIS, and Taliban—they're almost um, raised in a realm of fear, like the Azra who fight each other. But all of these give us an opportunity to relinquish some sort of clinging or strong views or what it is we're holding back on. We learn to lock into or learn of these feelings rather than back away and cave into them. We learn to bear witness to them, be with them, allow them to rise so we understand them. They show us with frightening clarity, with extreme. In extreme, we can observe them, what they are doing right here and right now with us. When the mind is clear, we can see into those deep waters what's moving there. We don't have to do anything. We can leave it there, but we can see it and not drown in it. So rather than turning away and blaming others, or simply shutting down in a freeze, we can engage through presence, through observation, and entering into Fear informs us that, you know, allowing us to acknowledge, "I'm afraid," it shows us. It tells us, "I have these feelings," and this offers us the opportunity to contemplate, "Well, why and who?" You know, who is feeling this? What's going on? Why am I engaging in this ongoing dialogue with deep, habitual behaviors that relate to fear? We can invite the objects of fear into our conscious field and work with them. Work with our issues surrounding stress, living at home, homeschooling, and money. Look at them, be still, and work with them. Bring them out. We need to keep a check on our underlying forces at play here. If these underlying streams and patterns of thought aren't recognized, it is said the mind is poisoned and it is here that our neuroses and our depression can grow. Actually, fear has a wisdom aspect too, as I've touched on. The awareness of danger. The awareness of something not being in balance. And so it is cautioning at us. It is telling us to be careful. If we meditate, we usually act quickly. We want to put the fire out before it starts to take off. And fear can transform us into a very precise... moment-to-moment assessment of a situation and allow us to act timely it becomes a timeless wisdom might even say a timeless wisdom fear we know it when we're driving we know it when we're walking we know not to stumble not to fall in a hole So we already have this wisdom around being careful. And by meditating, we we can grow it. We can meditate on many things that help develop this. One is, of course, the disadvantage of the cyclic existence or on death, impermanence. But too in everyday life, just bringing our attention and our awareness to what is arising and passing away. Every moment we breathe, we breathe in life. and When we breathe out, actually we're breathing out death. If we don't breathe in again, we pass on. Be so simple. And in this way, we can slowly abandon very negative and half-well actions that come out of fear and learn to live in a more ethical and purpose-filled life. Chukton Chodron, the wonderful nun who has written many books and has a bhikkhuni community in, in America. She talks about this wisdom fear. But she talks about it from various perspectives. One is, it's also afflictive, which means it is based on self-preservation. When we fear arises, We have to look, what are we trying to preserve here? What are we hanging on to in my self-view? And we can exaggerate acts unwisely and impetuously. And acts, sorry, unwisely and impetuously. She speaks on, it's erring on the side of caution. Not exaggeration. We uh, we lean to the side when we're more cautious, rather than exaggerating. All that is stimulating us through our media and through the stories and through what, what may what may happen. We learn that fear is very self-grasping and self-centered. Yet, for a well-trained practitioner or a bodhisattva, fear actually can help grow compassionate actions and wise actions, caring actions. So we learn to minimize the impact of the negative and grow the positive emotions by observing these habit energies. and not acting on them all. Benefits are that we are less likely to pass our fear on to others, especially our children, as to our other negative emotions of anger, anxiety, ill will. These all have connections, even though some of them, such as anger, And ill will are actually um, mental formations. Fear is more based in emotion. As we are observing the panic in Afghanistan, it prevents us to observe other situations in our life clearly. We have this. Need to help people. And at the same time, we can also put ourselves in danger. I'll tell a little story about this soon. And then there is an imaginative fear, something that we create in the mind with no real reality. A little like if we're half dozing in meditation and a story appears or a little movie appears in the mind. Like child's fear of moths or spiders. But these phobias can actually grow and be a strong foundation for insecurity later on. Also, scepticism and suspicion can arise from them. And we can continue creating these fears based on what is not to be feared, often even through games, children playing games, create a strong them and us. And who is going to win over the baddie? And this grows into adulthood as something real in the mind. In Korea, young people are dying playing games because it becomes their reality, their world, and they can't let it go. They immerse into it, day and night. They compete and challenge one another and they fight out these battles or games that are quite imaginative. Yet still there are genuine things to be afraid of. But we must remember, some people have little fear. The Buddha was an example of that when he put out his hand, the mudra of non-fear, surrounded in the protection of his mind. His wholesome mind. I read an interesting story about a woman with a brain, a a rare brain disorder. And she she had her amygdala, which is the centre for uh, detecting fear. It's, they say, an early, very early part of the human formation in the brain. And it is also there in reptiles but it is one to ward us against dangers but she had damaged somehow had damaged or was born with both sides of the amygdala were somehow damaged or not there and so from a young age she had showed no fear she would put a hand out to a poisonous snake but it didn't bite she was approached by a knife-wielding thug, but she calmly walked away. She simply never felt fear. And so the medical science was very curious about, you know, what was happening here. I actually have experienced time from time to time, and many of you will have, this sort of sense of being fearless. Particularly as a young child, I remember from the age of three, I was part of a children's gang, maybe the age of two in a country town. You know, children roamed wild. And, uh, and we did lots of things together in that town. And I remember being pushed into a swimming pool. And then I never had a fear of water. And I wandered all over the place on my own. of course, parents cannot allow this now. But later in Korea, I found I could live very comfortably in the mountains on my own in a foreign country. I didn't have locked, I didn't lock my doors, I didn't turn people away. People I knew every, very often every day sometimes would come who I didn't know, but I wasn't afraid. And I remember once being in America and walking down, I was going between the Korean temple I was staying in and helping in another Buddhist center in Los Angeles for for a month or so. And walking down the streets of Los Angeles, these back streets that were just full of gangs and gunshots firing off. And a man with a big knife walked up and passed me And then he looked at me, before he passed me, he looked at me up and down, and he said, you're okay, you're safe, and went on. Another time when I bought my very first little computer, it was up in the hills of the Blue Mountains, right up the top there, and I caught a train down. And I remember thinking at one point, Maybe sitting in a back carriage isn't too wise. I should go up the front with this computer. So as I was walking through the various carriages, I came to a section that the doors were sort of semi-locked. And I pulled on the door and this young boy sort of fell out. And there was a group of young teenagers holding that space. And again, they looked at me looked at the computer, and then one quickly opened the other door and let me through. And I put it down to not feeling fearless. I looked at them all carefully. I engaged in them, I acknowledged them, and I walked on. Clearly, with what I was carrying to the view of everyone. And can you imagine, during this visit in the early 90s, you know, carrying a computer, a little laptop. We have fear of our fake media, but some don't. There's a lot of confusion due to the unhelpful or even untruths that are spread. The fear of the unknown. Just can latch us on to poor news. Or really non news, but you know, I had these lovely friends of mine who have been very concerned about the issue of the dogs, the animals, rescue animals in in Afghanistan and every day are sending me emojis and little messages and, you know, one moment it's tears and pictures and, oh, how can it be like this? Why won't they? And the next moment there's big smiles. They've moved into the airport and then there's sort of little emojis of prayer where they get onto the plane. And I read it because these are friends. But I understand how this can be very emotive, how people can be swayed very strongly. I actually did go online to read the story and see what it was about, because at first I thought, oh, these must be animals, the pets of people who have been living in, uh, in Afghanistan, in Kabul. Or well, there may be the, the army animals, the dogs who work with the soldiers. I didn't know it was a re- a refuge for homeless animals. Wonderful thing. But interesting how people take that as their, their main story. I have a friend, a long-term friend, we have studied together in early years of Buddhism, and she confided to me that her, f- her partner of five years, decided to leave their relationship when she said she was having a COVID vaccination. He stated it would be toxic for him to live with her or to live with anyone who'd been vaccinated. She was so stunned as he had uh, been a very good person in so many ways, but to discover he was an anti-vaxxer with such a strong view. After he left, she reflected and noticed, actually, there had been a lot of signs there for quite some time that he was reading a lot of this sort of news. He was being informed about this, uh, the reasons not to have vaccination and that, you know, this was all conspiracy. was set up by governments to depower people you know the beliefs that we hear and though she was very sad to lose this partner in actually reflecting carefully she realized uh, it would have happened at some point so as a buddhist we learn by cultivating kind and caring speech and consideration for others, especially in communication. We discover we also discover that deeper listening can promote more harmony and understanding between us. Yet I've often noticed that our ways of communication can be very one-sided, especially in power-imbalanced relationships. One speaks and the other has to listen. So we don't really have conversation. We don't really engage in what it is we we think. We don't often give others the space to do that. And our opinion is the dominant. What happens over time is we began to block out and ignore and disengage. And now the thing is to pass on retweets and emojis, as I mentioned, dumping long opinions of unscientific, untrue data through our Facebook or WhatsApp or emails. But it inflames fear. And it disinforms and disempowers. You know how words can create joy. They also can distort. Just with simple little political pictures and comics and cutouts and pastes. And people spend a lot of time on their computers doing this. And they engage in others doing it. It becomes the way they think going back to, you know, the imaginary fears that we create. I personally find it very hard to take in all this information, sort of like an entertainment. So I'm committed to developing my speech so it is more truthful, more helpful. And it can inspire more confidence and joy all for the point to alleviate fear and obstructions and confusion. Not that it always transpires in this way. You can not always please everyone, so to speak, in that what we say, what I'm saying here, you agree with. Many of you will have clicked off already. But in this case, I continue to receive daily reports and are quite sad, dodgy emails. One of my committee members and a, a friend, a dear friend, She's been working day and night for the last week to help a woman activist and teacher who has with her husband and child Australian passports and visa to get out of Kabul. They've collaborated together on uh, projects to engage women and help them overcome their very long history of suppression and fear. And mental illness. I noted I've been sighing and breathing a little more deeply and doing prayers and inquiring how it's going. And I turn inwards and I try to face my own fears when I consider not only this woman, but many. waiting at the airport in hope of getting on a plane and many will not make it. So we will target the governments, the world leaders and the politicians, their inaction and their self-interest and racial prejudice and so forth, It will go on and create more sadness and fears. Still sometimes it's very difficult to get out of ourselves and transform this and work with this pain. However, our worldview is changing and our day-to-day life is changing. And we, in this very moment, are changing. It's never fixed, it's always in a flux. There are always fluid boundaries. And because of this, we have the options and the opportunities to find greater means to connect and communicate and adapt well to very difficult situations. I've had many opportunities in my life to learn, to adapt better, to be very precise with what I'm doing. Thanks to living in career, Going through terrors and difficult situations there, bushfires, being in places where there's floods or famine. We can be grateful that these difficult situations in our life develop our character. Make us stronger. There are people dying in bed from COVID, COVID related illnesses. And even in this limited capacity of life, they have some realizations. Suddenly, COVID is a real illness, a real danger. It's not a hoax anymore. And sometimes they regret not having the jabs. I'm sure most regret not having the jabs. And they become grounded in the here and now with each breath and that possibility of their final breath and their demise. They learn this is what it is. This is what I'm feeling in such strong clear ways. This is what's happening to others too in the world. There is the great pain and great unknowing and great insights that come to people who are just there with each breath. It's a story of a mother on her deathbed last week, whose husband, who with her husband were anti-vaxxers. They had five children. The husband had just died, and she was trying to convince the children to get vaccinated. It's hard to believe. It is still difficult for those children to change those views and those beliefs of what their father had instilled in them. It is so easy to spread things that we don't know for certain, something we've read or heard, with little distortions, added views, or utter words that can be divisive or bring discourse. And we know when practicing with, with joy and skillful means, how it can nourish our capacity for clarity and understanding and inclusiveness. So we have a choice here. We always have a choice. And we do know what transforms our fear and anger even though it's so deeply rooted in our minds and in our daily habitual patterns of thinking. Watching a documentary on the development of this present, of what has transpired to develop this present situation in Iraq. Some of you will have seen it, it's currently on iView. And it shows how the roots go back. The retribution has come from that first war in Kuwait. Story goes back. Then on to Iraq and Afghanistan and all the causes and conditions that grew from greed and ignorance and the need to conquer and change and fear from 9-11 that tore regions apart but without the wisdom to know what that would do and how it would grow extreme factions of Taliban and Islamic State and others of which we cannot imagine will happen in the future. But the saying, the miracle is not walking on water or fire. The miracle is walking on the earth. Right here, it points to a very important reality right beneath our feet. At some point, we have to face our humanity and its limitations. And how easy we can grow separation, and we're part of that. That which is different can scare us and can ignite hatred. That which we don't understand, or that is beyond our hopes, our fears, our expectations, can liberate us. It's hard to imagine how what it is that is beyond our hopes, our fears, our expectations can liberate us. It is in that unknowing, and I don't mean a, <clears throat> an ignorant unknowing or a blocking out, but it's going beyond our Expectations that lead to hopes, that lead to fears, that we will not get what we want. I recall that the threat of sending Australian troops to Iraq, this goes back some time now, some years, many years, I was walking with a good friend of mine, Jill Jamison, who was the chair of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship here in Victoria or in Australia, actually, and we were carrying their flag down the Melbourne streets with about 10,000 other anti-war protesters with a small group of Buddhist Peace Fellowship friends. But before the march began outside of Parliament House, there was a small stage set up, and after those political factions screamed out their objections, I was asked to get up on the podium and offer a prayer of peace. I got up, I had my full robes on, so I must have looked the part on some level and I must have been somehow a safe bet because there were many imams and Islamic beliefs there. And there were thousands and thousands of people up and down the street and in little streets verging towards the Parliament House. I soon realised that my voice in the speaker wouldn't reach very far. So I decided to speak to just those very near me and I asked them to lower their heads in silence. And I lifted my head to speak. I looked down and up the road and I could see all the heads were lowered as far as I could see in all directions and there was a hum of quietness. People were in prayer to those who could hear the words and to those who couldn't hear were immersed in their own thoughts and silence I spoke spoke about those who stand in front and behind and to the sides of us, as our brothers and sisters, our children, our parents, our elders. And how on earth, on the earth, we stand right now. With still quiet hearts, we unite as one. And in this oneness, we are beyond our differences of race and color and religion. And I continued in this way. And in this moment, I said, there is a sort of a union of prayer. There is a common prayer that we are all speaking the same language for peace, that of peace. It Went on for just a few minutes and the heads were still lowered and a vast pervading quiet continued to hum. I came down the steps of this little podium to the ground and as I stepped onto the ground, it felt very solid and I wondered what had just happened. Imams and other faith leaders standing at the foot of the podium, I'm sure all wanting to be up there themselves, sort of nodded and smiled and some put out their hand to say thank you. And then the procession began and I reflected and I wondered, why weren't those other Imams invited to the podium? But I realised I was a safe bet. A woman with a bald head, unknown, unrecognisable in a long grey robe, leading a prayer for no war in Iraq or anywhere really. This is wisdom fear, where we are inspired through sometimes political social downfalls to do good work in helping others to stand up and speak out against something, but in a way that is balanced with compassion, courage and empathy, so as to maintain the strength and focus on positive, inclusive actions. When I reflected on this last night, I thought of a woman, of the woman and her children and, and children in Afghanistan, who have been quietly helping educate and nurture women and children to regain dignity and confidence after years of oppression. I thought of my friend's colleagues, Murcil Nazari, her husband. Imam Nazar Nazari and their child, Awan Nazari, who are still waiting at the airport in Kabul in hope to be transported to a safer place. And offer prayers these last days to all of those in danger. those who are fearing for their lives, and those who are the oppressors, those who feel it is their right to go in and take over. Now many will have been left behind many with education and degrees, some educated here in Australia or elsewhere, who have helped embassies and been translators. Many have already died. but Those who are there to carry on will have to bear witness to what may come. So to us. due protection and care is not given, when attention is not given to the underlying causes of fear, situations can become very sad and we can become very ill. So I stand on the earth. I do stand with those who are very dedicated and strong and doing something that is beyond them just themselves and their own well being. I understand their fears. It is part of me and their pain is part of mine. But I won't let it stop. Me being inspired by life. and My nature to give where I can. Lama Govinda, in his book, The Living Buddhism for the West, said, Fearlessness is the most prominent characteristic of all bodhisattvas and all who tread on the bodhisattva path. For them, life has lost its terror and suffering its sting. Instead of scorning earthly existence or condemning it, condemning its imperfections, they fill it with a new meaning. It's very interesting. I'll read it one more time. Fearlessness is the most prominent characteristic of all bodhisattvas and all who tread, really, all who tread this Buddhist path. For them, life has lost its terrors and suffering its sting. Instead of scorning earthly existence or condemning its imperfections, they fill it with new meaning. And I would add to that, and wholesome actions, wholesome thoughts. And wholesome communication. So I will end here. And if you would like to share any of your concerns or questions, I would be happy to try and offer more thoughts. (laughs) But thank you for coming and thank you for listening to this.
1: Thank you very much, Sunim. Very relevant topic to talk about. Um, We have a few questions so far online. I'll read them out in order. The first question is, um, Theravada emphasizes joining the monastics to obtain liberation, which is not possible for ordinary lay people or billions of non-Buddhists. Is this what the Buddha intended to be the case?
0: no the buddha had the fourfold foundation the fourfold sangha monastics and monks and nuns laymen, laywomen lay women and he also had many um, non-buddhists who came to um, inquire with him to chat with him to understand and clarify and deepen their wisdom he never rejected anybody, as I don't think people of great insight and awakening do. They don't see it in those light of differences. However, the time that the Buddha was present, there were many caste, many sect, they were what they call the sadhus, the wanderers, and they all had Different forms, different ways to uh, live the path. Very religious, and have continued into, has continued to be a very religious place. But the Buddha did teach; um, he did inspire people to become monastic. Mostly, to they came to him in in times of great suffering great pain or the need for, you know, developing wisdom. Some came in family groups, like large communities of people who were studying under um, a teacher. And when the teacher became a disciple of the Buddha, so too a community also followed. So it is the fourfold Sangha and it is not just Buddhist at all. We're human beings. We're all here. And certainly, as we know, it is not just monks and nuns who awaken to the Buddhist truth. Many of the great scholars, many of the great practitioners, many of the great wisdom masters in the traditions, the my own tradition have been lay people and have even been people who have not been on the Buddhist path. Per se, people of other faith. We can take what is useful, what is wise, what is kind, and we work with that. You know, we are actually working on the path. Many of my friends and people I know, and my family are not Buddhist. I don't reject them. I don't. uh, Yeah, yeah. We work together. So, uh, yes, any more questions? I hope that's just a brief answer. But, yeah.
1: Thank you, Sunim. The second question uh, is related to the topic of your talk. Um, it, it is simply, how can we overcome fear? Perhaps the person's wanting some uh, direct practical tips that they can implement today.
0: Well, hopefully my whole talk was about practical yeah. tips. And I would suggest you have another listen to it very carefully because there are many um, insightful things there. But I guess you're asking what sort of meditations can you do to overcome fear? Again, every meditation, when done properly, will lead you to feel a state. You know, the development of insight, the development of calm, abiding will allow the mind to become stable and and present. That is a core practice, to not allow what has not arisen to arise, so not allow what is fearful to arise. But there are the practices of compassion, of loving kindness, of deeds that we can do that, um, you know, bring benefit to others and ourselves at the same time. But I mentioned quite a number of times to stop and look at what is going on. So can I suggest you have a listen, slow it down, and re-listen to it, and listen to it by section by section. And put some of it into practice. If we don't find a way to Still all this input and still the discursive thinking that is racing around in the mind, we won't even recognize when fear and anxiety is rising until it's really playing out in a physical way, an emotional way, and maybe even in our actions where we react quickly or yell at the children or do something which has got nothing to do with out there, but what we are feeling. Okay, thank you, Overnight, It doesn't happen overnight, but you can work on it. Yes. It's right there. Whatever you're feeling at this moment, if it has a component of some negative emotion, component of anxiety, fear, anger, whatever, then stop and look at what you are doing right now, what you are feeling.
1: Okay. Thank you Sunim. The uh, third and at this stage final question is, when you show compassion to someone, isn't that because of attachment? Can you please explain?
0: No. Pure compassion Is not out of attachment. It's not out of wanting something for me. It's a selfless act. It's responding to the situation at hand. It's responding in a way that is um, acknowledging what is in front of me or acknowledging a need. So when a true altruistic and actions that become maybe compassionate or maybe um, life-saving in a way. You know, their their skills like a doctor has. They're not doing it for themselves. It's an innate, an instinctive thing we have within us. We label it something like compassion. Selflessness, selfless joy, calm abiding, whatever we want to label it, these are just labels. But the experience of it, the reality of it, is there's no, other than the self-skills we have brought to that situation. There is not a self-need. And we get confused with compassion and love in the sense that I love you because you give me what I want. Or I'll do this for you if you do that for me. So we have a sort of, we develop these uh, conditional relationships. But this has nothing to do with compassion. It can guise itself very closely. It can look like it even. It can be kind and make beautiful food for others and do very nice things but they're conditional with an expectation that I'll get merit. I'll get something from you. Something will benefit me along the way. And it will. I mean, it certainly will. It's done with with kindness and love. Compassion. Empathetic joy. Altruistic. actions, you know, these are all something that very deeply ingrained in who we are as human beings. When we go deep enough, they just it's a natural process. Flows out of us like clear water from a spring.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much Sunim. That was uh, the last question for this morning, so We'll finish there. I just have a one quick announcement to make about next week. Um, we're trialing something new at the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Viewers will be able, he'll, he'll have the two choices of how they interact with the Dharma talk next week. One is you can, uh, as you have done this week, just watch on YouTube. But we will also be having a Zoom room set up where viewers can join the Zoom room with Ajahn Sadharo and actually be able to ask him questions directly using their voice uh, and interact with him directly. Uh, so the details will be sent out in the BSV newsletter and on the BSV website next week. So if you are interested, to join the zoom session and have that option to ask Sadharo a question in person you can do that through the links that will be pro- the link that will be provided otherwise if you're just happy to sit and listen and type your question as usual you can do that through the YouTube channel as normal but that's the end of today and thank you very much sunim for your talk this morning
0: I can just very quickly see one more question. England.
1: It has. It's just popped in. So, are you happy to answer that, Sunim? yes?
0: So, just I'm reading it at the moment. Thank you, Sadhu. One question, please. Why did the Buddha end? Would that encourage anyone to be in seclusion? How does it increase compassion for one, self and many? Um, so, we're talking about people who practice. You know feel at certain times in their life and practice to go and live um, in some level or depth of seclusion. To be very honest, it's, I mean, I live in somewhat seclu- seclusion. I have someone living here at the moment. But um, I'm also very engaged. So though people may live in... Uh, what you would say, you know, by themselves or away from society. It doesn't mean that they're not engaged. Even if it's only through meditation, you know, developing their meditation, which is, you know, really uh, often the point to, to live more on one's own. But some personalities find they benefit themselves and benefit others living in a more secluded place. My place is not secluded, you know, people come and it's a very lovely place. But I find that it's important to have time to study the Dhamma, to do practice, to also, you know, work on the property and, and make it and um, look after it. But I also, um, like many, have an inclination to honour the environment and the nature. And to live and understand, they teach me a lot. They teach me a lot. It teaches me a lot. And it's in—if you live in seclusion and you're not meditating, still you have a reason to do that. And sometimes it's—it's um, it's just people have joy to be to be in nature, to be on their own. We cannot judge that. And some people live right in a city, and yet they are totally on their own and lonely and have a deep sense of separation and seclusion. I don't feel secluded, I feel very engaged. So maybe expand that uh, that inquiry you have and, and have a read about people who, who do live in seclusion? I know you're talking about maybe monks who live on their own or go in the forest. But they are developing their wisdom, they're developing their, their capacity to attain in this lifetime the Buddhist path. Thank you for your question. And thank you, everybody, for joining me today. And uh, I wish you a very good week. And um, observe the emotions that are unfolding in regard to many things happening in the world at the moment. The merits to you all and to all beings. Thank you Langdon.